Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for coming to this conference this morning. I, I always love this conference. I've, I've gone for the last three years, and I've sworn to always return. You're just an amazing audience, knowledgeable, curious, positive. I'm glad the weather worked out today for to keep you inside. You know, we, we always love the rain in Montana. Plus, when you're presenting a conference, you want to see people in the seats, and I think that definitely helped out. Thank you, Martha, and the Montana History Society for, for hosting this. So today I'm going to be talking about the, the Chinese experience in Montana and a little bit more about that. I'm, I, like Martha said, I teach for the University of Notre Dame, but I live in Helena. I'm from Great Falls, so my work is kind of strange. I work for Notre Dame, live in Montana, and do most of my work in California. So I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> Just got back from Sacramento the other night, or on Thursday, had to go to a football game in, in Boulder last night. Uh, Jefferson High School played Big Timber, and so then I hustled on over, made it as far as Livingston last night, and then came in this morning. So I love the Montana experience. And, and in my background, I stumbled across some experiences that can hopefully illuminate our understanding of the Chinese experience in Montana. Connecting to this morning session, the way that I found that was a lynching that happened in 1870, perpetrated by John X. Beadler, who you heard about this morning, who hanged a Helena resident named Ah Chow. And so I tell that and more stories in my book, The Middle Kingdom Under the Big Sky, A History of the Chinese Experience in Montana, out in, uh, from the University of Nebraska Press, out in May. And what I tried to do in this book is twofold. I wanted to try to tell the experience of Chinese Montanans whenever possible in their own words or through their cultural perspective. And so we translated, we, I, I used to teach in Shanghai, China, and so I, I did a couple of projects to bring students with the necessary language abilities to Helena to work in residence to translate letters like the one you see on the screen from the 1880s to 1920s time period. Now these letters were from Southern China written to a gentleman working in Butte. He obviously was writing back to Southern China, but those letters are lost. But it tested, these letters testified to the pressure that these Chinese Montanans were under from home and local society and things like that. And in that course, we also found another much larger collection of documents all in Chinese from the period of the 1930s to the 1950s. Cold War, Red Scare type tensions. And so in the book, I try to tell the story of Montana's Chinese in their own words or by understanding Chinese history, Montana history, and how the two come together through a global lens. A lot of times I think we understand the Montana side of things, but not necessarily more broadly, or the Chinese side of things, but not necessarily the history of the American West, trying to bring those two things together. But as I did this over about 12 years, a bit of a slow worker, but this is just my hobby. This is not what I do for a profession. This is what I do in my spare time. Not everything fit. And so today's presentation is something I call manuscripts. It didn't fit in the manuscript, but I thought, you know what, let's save this. And I've, I've worked on this one. I've got another manuscript project on the, uh, the, the disallowing Chinese from settling in my hometown of Great Falls, Montana. I'm also looking at Chinese gardens across the state and how they filled the dietary niche and, and brought some technologies from southern China to Chinese gardens in Bozeman, Boulder, Butte, Helena. So if anybody knows about Chinese gardens and gardening in the state, please let me know. And I know that you all know that Montana one time had a very large Chinese population. First time that it was counted, the territorial census of 1870, it was about 10 to 12 percent of the overall non-native population of Montana. Quite, quite large, and it grew into 1890. You'll notice in 1890 it reached its peak at 2,532 across the state of Montana. Now we're going to be talking today about Butte, and sometimes that number is ascribed to Butte. That's a misreading of the data, so this is 2,500 Chinese folks across the state of Montana. It's likely an undercount 
but not by a whole lot. I think the census takers were, were pretty uh, careful in that. Now, life was not easy for Chinese Montanans, as I'm sure you can imagine, but it wasn't as hard as it was in other places in the West. And there were sites of violence and expulsion, forcible expulsion of the Chinese across the American West. Sadly, in California, where there was a much larger Chinese population than in Montana, but proportionally speaking, kind of similar, the Chinese fell victim to forced expulsion and specifically the anti-Chinese riot in Los Angeles in 1871. And these dots on the map are sites of violence against Chinese Californians. So life was not easy there. You go further north to, to Washington Territory. In 1885, there was a forcible expulsion from Tacoma. 1886, from Seattle. And so violence was, meet, was, was visited upon the Chinese population of each of these regions. In Oregon, on the Oregon-Idaho border in 1887, there was a massacre of more than 30 Chinese miners. Here you see a stone commemoration being placed in Chinese and Nez Pearson in English, the three kind of coming together of those peoples in that area. I happened to be at that, that memorial setting. Um, so violence, often bloodshed or forcible expulsion, was the norm. In Idaho, the same type of thing, the Chinese being forced out. And then probably the most notable for our purposes, Colorado in 1880 in Denver, an anti-Chinese riot, and then bloodshed in Rock Springs, Wyoming in September 1885. Okay, that's the one perpetrated by the Knights of Labor. And in most of these instances that I just mentioned, very little justice was meted out against those who had spilt the blood. Okay? China was not a very powerful nation at this point in time, and it couldn't force the American legal system to really prosecute these individuals who had carried out the forced expulsion of the massacres. And as you saw for Washington, sometimes it's the mayors or the governors or very high-ranking non-Chinese folks in the West forcing out their Chinese neighbors. And so justice wasn't found very often. Yet in Montana, there were no instances of mass violence, bloodshed, or effective exclusion expulsion of the Chinese Montanans. I mentioned Great Falls was the one place that didn't allow them to settle, but in terms of a forcible moving them out from certain cities and towns, that really didn't, didn't happen. And in terms of a forcible massacre of Chinese in Montana, thankfully, that didn't really happen. And so now I ask you, why? Why? Now I also ask you to think about, like, how do you prove why? How do you prove that something didn't happen, or why something didn't happen? It's early, it's, uh, it's Saturday morning, I want you to meet your neighbors and turn and talk a little bit. What do you think about this idea? I'm serious, I'm a teacher, okay? Turn and talk, introduce yourself. What might have accounted for the fact that there was so much violence against the Chinese in those other states and territories I mentioned, yet thankfully in Montana, though life wasn't easy, blood wasn't spilt to the same degree. Go ahead and turn and talk for 30 seconds. Back to me. 
I, I appreciate that many of you did turn and talk as, as you do. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I, I came to hear you tell me why. Don't make me think it's too early on Saturday. It, but it is a difficult thing to prove why something didn't happen. And now that you might say, well, maybe there was a smaller Chinese population, so there weren't as much of a threat. That's not true, quite large in terms of relative size. Uh, maybe they didn't work in the same industries. They worked in the same extractive industries across the West, and then they were pushed out of those largely into laundry work and restaurant work, whether you're a Chinese person in Idaho, Wyoming, or Colorado, or Montana. And so they, they filled the same economic niches. And so why, why might that have been the case. So what I decided to do to try and look at this is look at when it was close, when violence was closest to sim moving from a simmer to a boil, and when it would have been likely and kind of understandably contextually why, not, not excusable, but understandable why it would have boiled over, and see maybe what got in the way of that. So where it was simmering, where it might have boiled, and then look at the context. And for our purposes, the context most specifically is Butte. 1880-1881, and lumber extraction, chopping down trees for a number of different things. And so things got very, very tense in the winter of 1881 to the point that violence would not have been unthinkable. In fact, it was quite close, quite close. So here you see calls for wood choppers in Butte, Walkerville, and places like that. Now the winter in 1880-1881 is one of the worst the Rocky Mountain region has known. Temperatures dipped to 54 degrees below zero, high snowfall, so bad that Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote a novel about it on the, the broader uh, American West. A harsh, harsh winter. And so the people out there chopping this wood had it tough. Now what are you going to use the wood for in, the, in such a deep winter? Heating your, your homes, right? And so the people who were chopping the wood, these white workers, remind the people in Butte no doubt the people of Butte and Walkerville enjoyed their nice warm houses and stoves during the past terrible long winter. Little dreaming that the poor men in the mountains chopping the very wood which made their homes warm and comfortable were working from daylight to dark over waist deep in snow and not making more than a few cents per day. Remember we kept you alive last winter? Maybe you need to pay us a little bit more. And so they unionized. The Bull Run, Hail Columbia, and Pilgrim Gulch, Wood Haulers and Wood Choppers Union. And here you can see what they're charging per cord of wood that they chop, and then it's going to be purchased for more when it's delivered to Butte. But there's differences per cord. Bull Run, it was just harder to chop and, and haul wood there. Pilgrim Gulch, $1.75 per cord. Hail Columbia, $1.50 per cord. And so they're trying to unionize and make sure that people understand the hard work that they're doing. Now, these Bull Run, Pilgrim Gulch, Hail Columbia, they're all north of Butte just north of Walkerville. I'm sure you can see all the detail on this beautiful map sourced from the Butte and Silverbow Archives, a great institution. Here's a little close-up. And here you have the Hale Columbia Gulch and the Bull Run Gulch. Here you see Walkerville, and here's Butte proper. So just north of that, this white miners' union is trying to unionize, trying to demand higher wages for the hard work they do in such harsh conditions. Those conditions will be key. But... By far the greatest consumer of wood in Butte was not heating houses. It was smelting. Here's a drawing of the Colorado and, and Montana smelter. Pretty looks pretty good there. You know, there's some smoke billowing out, but pretty orderly. Uh, this is what it looked like a couple of years later in a photograph, right? And so they're doing a process called heap roasting, a primitive way to extract the precious metals from the ore. And heaps would be dug and, and basically 
logs laid or laid on top of it, logs laid or laid on top of it, logs laid or laid on top of it, as tall as a man, a city street wide, and as long as a city block. These heaps would be lit on fire and burned for two to three weeks, consuming 200 cords of wood with each heap. And you can imagine the horrible stench and the smell and the toxicity that's released. It was not a good place to live in the 1880s with this smoke from these, these, uh, these smelters and this heap roasting process that's consuming massive amounts of wood. And to get that wood, people had to go out and chop it down. Here you see cords of wood laid and be ready to be delivered in the Anaconda area. How was it delivered? Sometimes by mule train and things like that. Sometimes by flume. There's a flume using gravity to transport wood in the Anaconda area. And back to that picture of the Montana and uh, Colorado smelters, here's a close-up of it, and you see just these stacks of wood for fuel ready to be consumed, and they're going to need more and more and more and more. And the Montana and Colorado smelter was a going concern. In 1880, they processed 4,800 tons of ore. I don't know if that's a lot or not. I need something to compare that against, right? In 1881, in January, they already had 4,000 tons on hand ready to process. So they're going to need far more wood in 1881 than they needed previously. Okay? They must have that wood. And so they put out uh, attempts to try and secure that wood. Joel Ketching, a white guy in Butte, contracts with the Colorado and Montana smelter to provide 10,000 cords of wood. Should be pretty easy to do, right? Just go hire those wood choppers and get it done. Problem was he's offering $1.56 per cord with a bonus of $500. Do you remember what the union's rates were? And he couldn't find any workers at these rates. They're sticking to their guns and trying to force these rates. Joel Ketching's contract, he's going to try and harvest wood about 13 miles south of Butte. It's a little bit easier to harvest, a little bit easier to get to market instead of those areas north of Butte. Plus, the difficult thing for these union members, conditions that undercut their, their, bar their bargaining power. That harsh winter of 1880-1881 was much milder in 1881-1882. It was just, you know how things go in Montana, and it was a very, very mild winter in 81-82 when Joel Ketching needs to harvest this wood or get somebody to harvest it and deliver it. But these union workers are sticking to their guns and they won't budge on that rate. Ketching has a contract to deliver upon, and so he needs workers. You see where I'm going with this? Who might he contract with? The Chinese. And he does. He contracts with the Chinese, a legal and binding contract. Now, they weren't in the profession of wood chopping. Some of them probably mined in other areas. Chinese were not allowed to mine in the underground mines in Butte until about 1940. So they're not mining in Butte, but they're working in laundries and restaurants and things like that. But they take, take work as it comes. So they probably didn't rise on the census as wood choppers, but if they can make a buck at it and they've got the hard work to do it and the opportunity to do it, they're going to seize that opportunity. So Joel Ketching contracts with Chinese workers here. You can see Charlie Chung and Gong Wong Long. What's this X there in the middle? Their signature, right, on the contract. And so Joel Ketching contracts with them in October 81. Again, it's fall, moving into what nobody knows it's going to be, but it is a mild winter. And they're going to deliver these and a $50 bonus and things like that at $1.50, uh, actually a little bit lower than that. There have been earlier efforts to use Chinese woodchoppers, and it didn't go very well. In May of that spring, 60 or 70 wrathy, angry woodchoppers, white woodchoppers, swooped down upon the Chinese and with a persuasiveness rarely equaled, argued the heathens into a belief that the mountains were not healthy for Chinamen. All of that's in quotes, obviously. Okay? 
I argue that their persuasiveness was maybe not as great as they thought. While they had chased them off, later on in October, other Chinese signed this contract with Joel Ketching to go out and do this work. So Ketching and his Chinese partners are working to fulfill this in December 81, a mild December. This guy to the right, Chance Harris of Butte, who's in the wood chopping business, organizes a mob and goes out against the Chinese. About 216 people led by Harris and a guy named Mattingly, armed, go down to Catching's Wood Camp, 13 miles south of Butte, and who knows what they're going to do to the Chinese. But this is where I talked about that simmer of anger could easily boil to bloodshed, unless somebody stepped in. And here's our hero, Constable E.T. Owen. Constable E.T. Owen. He hears of this, races ahead of the mob 13 miles, gets there just before the mob, gets to the Chinese wood camp, and literally stands his person between the mob of 216 angry, armed, white woodchoppers and about 40 Chinese woodchoppers behind him. And E.T. Owen says, you're not going to do this on my watch. One guy. One guy. And it was stated that he had not flinched for a moment from the discharge of his duty and attempted to arrest the ringleaders. Not only does he say, not on my watch, you're under arrest. <laughs> Literally reads them the riot act. Now, the, uh, the, the, the ringleaders laugh at his attempt to arrest them. But as he's buying time, the Chinese disperse. And so no Chinese are harmed in this, what could have simmered to a boil of bloodshed. Now, he says, I'm going to arrest the ringleaders. They kind of laugh. Well, E.T. Owen was a man of his word. Goes back to Butte and forms a posse. The mob stands down. Owen organizes a posse and does actually arrest six ringleaders of that mob. Delivers them to the city jail. Now, will justice be served? Does it even matter because these Chinese aren't citizens? They're not well-liked. They don't have a lot of official support from their government. If you harm them, can you be held legally accountable? Well, that's what we'll see. The trial commences, but with Section 13 of Montana's Criminal Practice Act, it talked about who could or couldn't bear witness against white defendants. And it was stated that Chinese people shall not be permitted to give evidence in favor or against any white person. So, yeah, you might hold Chance Harris, you might bring him to trial, but then who's going to testify? And the reason for this, and this was actually quite common across the American West, bless you, is because of this idea that the Chinese supposedly didn't understand the binding nature of an oath. Because, of course, they're not Christian, and you have to understand that if you swear an oath and lie, your eternal soul will be damned type of thing. They didn't understand or hold themselves to that, so we cannot count their testimony. Yeah. Do you have to be Christian to testify in a court of law? Right? So it's obviously pretty racist against the Chinese and, and disempowering them. But we'll see if that holds sway. The guy who's in charge of this is Judge J.B. Wilcox, radical Republican from a place called Hudson, Ohio, which also has connections to John Brown's family and some abolitionist movements. And Judge J.B. Wilcox actually allows the Chinese to testify against Chance Harris and Mattingly. Here's the subpoena where we see Charlie Chung is called to testify. He's first on the witness list. Not just Charlie Chung, though. Also, wood choppers, Agat, Ahap, Asun, Ayon, Aai, Awan. Probably not their real names. If you want to know more about those strange naming practices, you might find uh, the Middle Kingdom under the big sky of interest. <laughs> but they're called to testify, and their testimony actually is entered into the record and, and held to have sway. 
I think that's interesting, and that's an interesting stance by Judge J.B. Wilcox, but even more important are his instructions to the jury. And he instructs the jury thusly. Under the treaties and laws of the U.S., Chinamen are entitled to retain certain rights and privileges, and one of them is that they are entitled to the protection of life and property under the laws to the full extent and equal of treatment. This is before the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, with something called the Burlingame Treaty of 1868, where the Chinese were invited into America to build the railroads, and they should have equal protection under the law. And so Judge Wilcox is reverting back to that instead of Montana territorial statutes. As though they were bona fide actual citizens of the United States. And in this case, the offense charged is no less an offense under the law because the persons on whom the violation is charged to have been committed were Chinamen. He tells the jury that if they had been a white man and full citizens of the United States, the law of the land in this case is equal and alike, and the jury should consider so in this case. I think it's a pretty brave stand by Judge Wilcox. Harris goes on trial. If found guilty, he could face a fine of $500 and one to three years in the territorial prison. He's sentenced to a fine of $100. The jury does find him guilty, but imposes the lightest sentence that they can, kind of getting a sense that, you know, they saw the, the, the judge's point, but they didn't want to necessarily stand up for the Chinese too much. It's a brave stand by Constable E.T. Owen to stand off this mob of 216 armed people seeking possibly to do violence against these Chinese Montanans, and it likely prevented violence in that case. Brave stand by Judge Wilcox, taking up the rights of anyone in the U.S. to equal protection and, and the right to enter legal contracts, and it signaled broader protection. This is 1882 in the spring when this uh, decision comes down. Sadly, in that same spring is when the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed, and things will get worse for the Chinese across the American West. 1885 was not a good year for the Chinese in the West. Rock Springs Massacre in September 85, Tacoma Expulsion in November 85, Seattle Expulsion in 86, Massacre of Miners on the Idaho-Oregon border in 87. But what about in Montana? Well, with that context, things were not easy, but thankfully not as violent. April through December of 1885, there were a number of boycotts against the Chinese in Montana, attempting to try and expel them with varying degrees of success. Anti-Chinese boycotts in Anaconda, Butte, Dillon, Deer Lodge, Glendale, and Nyhart. Except in Nyhart, there were two Chinese people they liked, so they said that this is for all the Chinese, except for these two guys, who we kind of, we kind of <laughs> like them. Now these boycotts, you know, would they be effective or not? Chinese were barred from Great Falls around the same time period, and that would stay in effect until the 1930s. Attempted arson against a Chinese temple in Butte. These could escalate from simmering to boiling over, possibly, and so let's look at that moment of possible violence and see how it was prevented. Deer Lodge, October 1885. The Knights of Labor say the Chinese must go. They announce this at night. By November 15, 1885, we're going to kick the Chinese out, and anybody who patronizes the Chinese will feel our wrath. But when they announced this in late October of 1885, they did it without any signature and in the middle of the night. So the Knights of Labor were kind of secretive about this and not really owning this. Now the city fathers of Deer Lodge said, no, not on our watch. And they actually detailed why they opposed the boycott, not because they loved their Chinese neighbors, but a boycott against one group could quickly turn into a boycott against Catholics or Protestants or other groups or other ethnicities. So they said, we're not going to do that here in Deer Lodge. 
we're not going to ascribe to your anonymously announced in the middle of the night boycott that's supposed to happen in November. Instead, they say, not in our town, and they sign their names. Whoa. About 70 city fathers and important people in Deer Lodge say, no, we're not going to let this boycott take place. And so in key moments like this where violence was imminent, white allies stood up for rights, laws, and contracts, and their Chinese neighbors, though I don't think out of any love for their Chinese neighbors. In the same context, Montana's Chinese stood up as well. There was an attempted boycott in 1886 in Helena. They stood up and said, we're following all your laws, we pay all our taxes, we just want a chance to earn an honest living by the sweat of our brow. And that boycott passed. With the 10-year anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act, something stronger was passed called the Gary Act, and Montana's Chinese fought against it by not complying with that law. There was an attempted boycott in Butte in 1896-97 that was very, very serious, and the Chinese stood up against that. They actually got Wilbur Fisk Sanders to serve as their attorney. Again, key white allies in moments where violence could be imminent, and they stood up and won an injunction against that boycott. So it's not just the white allies doing the work, the Chinese are standing up with strength as well, and maybe the most interesting moment of strength. They formed an armed militia that actually trained in military tactics and practiced with live ammunition in Butte in 1906. Sometimes you'll hear this idea that there are all these Chinese tunnels underneath towns in, uh, across Montana because the Chinese were so oppressed that they couldn't even live above ground. They lived above ground, they lived quite boldly, quite bravely, and they had quite a bit of success, protected by those white allies and by their own strength. Thank you very much.